Hey, buddy, you you back the you back the hell up, Unk Few. <laughs> right. Unk Few for the mucker. <laughs> so, uh, what do you want to talk about today? I wanna I wanna I'm gonna talk about uh, we'll talk about I talk about airports. Talk about kids. What do you want to talk about? <laughs> All right. I mean, those those are logical things. Yeah, that makes total sense. We didn't record this at the end of the show and then <laughs> edit it back to the front of the show. Uh, how was your walk? Uh, it was good, man. I've been trying to do a lot of walks lately. I've been trying to get down to 13% body fat. What are you right now? 54? <sighs> I got no idea. Uh, not 54. I'm probably closer to about 18, 17% maybe. You've never, um, you've never been fat, have you? Well, actually you were as a child. I was a really, uh, you were, you were tubby, attractive child. You were tubby. Yeah. You were tubby and you will not enjoy this story. (laughs) (laughs) I'll be brief. Yeah. Hey, hey, you want some salt and lemon that you can rub in those wounds? (laughs) Oh, I mean, shit. Everybody, everybody did dumb shit as a kid. Um, oh my God. And it wasn't dumb shit. It was just being a kid. But I just sort of have this this very distinct memory of you. In fact, I would call it one of my probably top 10 memories of you. You know, we don't choose these things. They choose us. Yep. And it's uh, true. The memory is we're at, I still recall where it was um, a Chinese restaurant in Northville that I don't think exists anymore. And uh, this is a classic Chinese place. You know how those are. You know, like this kind of a low level, medium level Chinese place. This yeah, was, this is, is, they're kind of the, the, the curve. <laughs> it's a steep. It's oh, yeah. like a it's like a large middle. It's a real plateau. <laughs> yes, yes. The bell curve is unusual on this one. Basically, you have P.F. Chang's on one end, and then sort of everything else, and then the place where you'll find like a dog forearm in the trash. Yeah. <laughs> um. But anyway, the, the memory that was this is way too many words for this stupid story. But the memory is that. You sort of threw a tantrum at one point, and you were very young. You couldn't have been 19 or 20. Um, <laughs> no, for real. Was I, was I like four or something? You are like three. Oh, I got I it. I mean, you were really little. Uh, but you, you threw a tantrum, and you ended up laying on the floor of the restaurant, you know, right next to where we were, on the, you know, like basically right next to the table. And you had thrown so much food on the floor that you got down on the floor. I mean, this was not your intention. This is just the way it worked out. You ended up doing making like a snow angel in the food that you'd thrown on the floor. So you basically cleaned off the floor that you were laying on, and, and then right around you, there was like a snow angel formation of like wonton noodles and rice and whatnot. <laughs> oh, yeah. And I just recall sitting there watching you, just like, all right. Like how they gonna how long are they gonna let this go on right here? How long are they gonna let this go on? And like they never stopped you. It was just that the, the meal we just left, <laughs> and they just picked you up and carried you out. <laughs> My parents are probably like it's so it's so bad because now as I'm an adult and I go out in public and I see parents who are behaving, I'm sure the way my parents behaved with me, it just makes me so angry. Like I, you've heard that bit of mine, right? That um, stand up bit? No. Where I talk about children at the airport. Oh, my God. No, I'm dude. Just, I'll, no, I want to hear this. T- Go ahead. Let me do a tiny bit of – the bit was I would – I basically – it's a real story. And this happened – As opposed to everything else you say, which is fabricated. Yeah, it's just, just bullshit and made whole cloth out of, out of thin air. <laughs> I'm just weaving 
Weaving dreams into stories on stage. There's a there's an intellectual there no there's a there's a loom of of disintegrity that's constantly weaving in your head. <laughs> Spinning yarns on the stage in front of live audiences. Everywhere. <laughs> Why, my friend, I I I have the eye of Orpheus. <laughs> Okay, I don't know what that means. Going on with your story. Children at the airport. I actually have several children at the airport stories myself. Let's hear yours first. Oh, I can't wait to fucking hear you. I cannot wait to hear yours. So I was at the – so here's the background to the bit, and then I'll actually do the bit, is that I'm at the airport in Edmonton, Alberta, in Canada, and there are just two kids, and they're running around, and they are just just the worst and uh, the bit basically is I um, let me just do it. So I'm sitting there at the airport and I hear over the PA system all of a sudden apropos to nothing. I hear it's on speakers at an airport and it's like I, I freaked out. I jumped up. I, I freaked out. Everybody was freaking out. We're like, oh, my God, is there a bomb about to go off? Is there? Is there? Are we all about to die? Is there a plane that's like about to crash into the terminal? Like, what's happening? Nobody knows what's happening. Everybody's looking at each other. Everybody's sweating bullets. No one has any idea what's happening. And then it just stops, and it goes. Can we get a janitor to gate C thirty seven? Can we get a janitor to gate C thirty seven? There's been a child that's had an accident. Uh. <laughs> I was like, Are you fucking kidding me, airport? I was like, could you have used something that, I don't know, doesn't make me think that airborne anthrax is just <laughs> wafting through the terminal? And <laughs> so they were calling that about two kids who were literally at the next gate to mine. I was at C-35, and C-37 was the next gate next to mine. And these two kids were causing all kinds of trouble, and they were running around and just like doing all kinds of shit. And 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 for real, I, this actually happened. I, this is the bit, but it did actually happen. There was two kids, a brother and a sister, and one of them ran up to an old man who was sitting across from me. He was eating a candy bar. Okay, grabbed the candy bar out of his hand, bit it, and then put it back in his hand. <laughs> <laughs> And that was the little girl. And oh my I, god! Yeah, so this really happened in Edmonton Airport, and I looked over at their parents, and they were sitting there, just, just dead, just, just. De- I mean, like, could they, had they been weren't beaten doing, down weren't by the process? Attention. Yeah, and so I like they. I made eye contact with the mom, and then I like gestured toward the kids, and then gestured toward them, and then did like a "What are you like? What? Yeah, like with my hands, <laughs> right?" And then the and this a hundred percent Uncle Mike this happened. The mom looked at me and then shrugged. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, "This oh. is not. Yeah, it's fucking insane." I was like, "What? Are you kidding me? You shrugged? Like this isn't this isn't like the weather. This right. isn't like a a Wi-Fi connection that isn't working. Like right. this isn't something that you can literally do nothing about. Right. Like, this is your kid. All right. Hit him." Yeah, <laughs> right. But you see, I think what you're showing there, and, and I'm in the same exact boat as you because you know I've never had kids. Never, honestly, I never wanted to have kids, for for precisely this reason that we're discussing, which is yeah. I cannot imagine how I would react in that circumstance because I would, I would run over and I would grab my kid by his by his 
you know, by his shirt front. I'd pull him into me, and I would leave a handprint on the right side, on the left side of his face, that would last for seven to nine hours. Oh yeah, and that's how your kids get taken away from you. And then I'd lose them, and then I'd go to jail, and yeah. that would be the end of it. So yeah, I think the way that our culture has evolved, it's it's put uh, lots of parents in really really awkward positions where they their instincts are actually good, their instincts are actually correct. They can't act upon them though. And so yeah. well, have you seen did you see did you ever have you heard of 112263 it's a TV show no. you ever heard of it no okay so it's this TV the background just very briefly is that it's a TV show about uh James he stars James Franco he's he's a uh he's a college writer who like a professor who's a writer who discovers for some reason uh, and it's not important to the story why but he discovers some for some reason there is a portal to October 22nd 1963 in the back of a closet that he's purchased and when he goes through it he goes <laughs> back in time to that day and that's important because that's when Kennedy was assassinated uh. and the story it's an interesting show you can watch it on YouTube but it's uh, the story is fascinating only because when he goes back in time, this was made like three years ago or something. This show, it's like 2016 or 2017. When the story was made, uh, they paid a lot of attention to detail for the cultural differences between the 1960s and today. So mm-hmm. 1963, they try to portray it as culturally like as it is as possible. So another one of the things they paid attention to is there's a kid in one of the episodes who's bullied and everybody in the community in which he's bullied, it feels bad for the kid, but they also feel like it's your responsibility to deal with the bully. Mm. Like you're, it's your responsibility to stand up to this bully, yep. even though like the whole community isn't going to come together to stop you. And that was so, so interesting to watch. Cause I was like, that's not the way it is at all today. Right. Like, if you got a bully, that's like the whole village's problem, except yours as the person who got bullied. Which is fascinating how that's all changed. Oh, completely. So completely changed. So, uh, so that's that's really interesting, and and it's so true. It's just so true how the the prevailing cultural currents have have morphed. It's, it's so ironic that we're having this conversation because for the listeners, uh, we as always had no conversation, or as usual, we had no conversation about what we're going to talk about, and in fact. We just started talking and then just decided to record it. I, I mean, so uh, so this is as off script as you can get. But Brendan doesn't know that I've written this massive blog post, which I'm publishing tomorrow or the next day. And it's uh, it actually touches on exactly what we're talking about now, which is just really how, yeah, I swear to God. In fact, it starts. It's called it's called uh, Once in a Lifetime, same as it ever was. You know the song by the Talking Heads. Oh yeah, of course. Well. Um, uh, the reason I chose that song to be sort of the, you know, the the metaphor for the blog post, and it's a massive, I mean, it's like 20 pages typed, um, is because I I keep thinking, same as it ever was, uh, because there's so much has changed, so much has changed since I was in college, and that's when I first heard that song. And that's, so, that's what got me thinking about, like, what was life like then versus now? I mean, it's almost exactly the, the thing with the James Franco show. You just mentioned that's the whole point of it is that was then this is now how much have things changed it's just insane and i don't want to get off on this right now specifically i just wanted to comment on it because 
it's just weird that you don't know that. And but that's exactly those cultural changes just happen. Yeah, they and, do. They do. And it's it it I'm fascinated by this entire dynamic of the culture changes around you and the and and it changes you. And yeah. and, and and I think we've talked about this before, but like I've seen people, a number of them, I could give you their names. People who moved from point A to point B, they moved from, let's say, the culturally and politically conservative Midwest to New York or to yeah. Los Angeles or, or San Francisco. And they become very different people, and there can only be one explanation. Oh, yeah. They're just culturally influenced Culture. by the miasma they, they, yes. they suddenly find themselves in. Yeah, in fact, I know we talked about this before, but you know, and you of all people— you yeah. of more than anyone I've ever known, perhaps, you know, has a, has a a legitimate perspective on that. Like, oh yeah, I mean that's what happened to me when I went to France the first time, in in '08 and was working. Is it was just like such a it was such a unique difference, and and you can't help but be affected by by all of that, you know. And in fact, let's come back to that because I I really want to talk about that because I think that's fascinating. But I I can't let this opportunity go without telling my two airport stories and they're they're yeah, not long. Yeah, so, please, I really want to hear these. Okay, so the first is, I mean, actually they're not that great, but the the first is um I was in Salt Lake City at the Salt Lake City Airport. Oh yeah, been there twice. I've been there several times. Uh in fact, I love Utah. It's one of the most beautiful. It actually is the most beautiful thing I've ever seen in America. It's uh, a it's a lovely place. It's, it's incredible. True. Spectacular. It's, it's too bad about all those Mormons. <laughs> well, ultimately, that gets to the point of the story. So I'm at the airport, and I'm just sitting waiting for a flight. And, you know, exactly as you just alluded, uh, you know, I think everyone knows that um, and this isn't racist. It's just a, an accurate observation. The Mormons Mormon, aren't a race. They're just a very polite group of people. They are. They're like kind of like Amish with, with vehicles and electricity. Yeah. Uh, and a mafia, interestingly <laughs> enough, which is a, yeah, which Mormon is an mafia. odd third wheel, but um, but you know they they tend to have large families. So uh, I'm I'm at the airport, and I see I hear kind of like in your story where you hear this sound that seems weird to you. I hear this the din, and the din is the per, the perfect word for this. I hear a din approaching. It's like this, it's like a group. There's a group of people approaching and they're kind of loud and obnoxious. And this is like, two, you know, two o'clock on a Sunday afternoon. And I look, I look down this hall and I just see this horde of children oh, follow, yeah. followed by a couple of adults. And I quickly deduce, oh my gosh, like I think that's a family. And so as, as my bad luck would have it, they were coming right into my section. They're coming right for me. They were coming right for me, and two of, and I honestly don't remember the number of children. I believe I because they were in constant motion, so they were hard to count. Um, but I swear to God, I think there were between eight and eleven. Oh my God! I think there were eight, and so um, two of the kids broke free of the pack and ran ahead, <laughs> and and <laughs> like they knew where they were going, and and they ended up like basically at my feet. And they were involved in what appeared to be something in between an actual fight between siblings and a sort of a big time wrestling reincarnation of, you know, like they were they were playing. And I honestly couldn't tell the difference. So I'm yeah. just sitting there horrified. I got my laptop in my lap and, you know, I'm doing some work. 
And these kids are going at it. I mean, like they're probably five feet from me, right in front of me. Then several of the other kids join in. So yep. they, they start running and they, they're like jumping, on, they're diving on each other. Like, you know, like I can't think of the big time wrestling names anymore, but you know, jumping off ladders and shit. And this thing, this here's the point of the story, is this went on for, I'm going to say, a solid three to five minutes. Now, you might not think that's a long time. It's it's eternity when you're watching something like that. Like, oh, my God. Ten Wait, seconds of that. Work done. Ten seconds of that's crazy. But this went on for, and then, and the parents just had that same look you described uh, earlier. You know, like they had that look like, in fact, I recall, mm. I was looking what at What am them, I going to do? Yeah. The exact same sort of a shrug the shoulders reaction, and I think that you just get beat down as a parent. I hope to never find out because I just wouldn't survive it. So that's my first story. My second story is actually uh, so radically different. So my mother, who I, I've talked a lot about lately for some strange reason, it, she just had her 87th birthday uh, a couple weeks ago, and she had not been on an airplane for, I really don't recall how long, I'll say a solid decade, if not 20 years. Like, she just hasn't flown. Oh, actually, no, probably, you know, they, they had that condo down in Naples, Florida. So it would have been then. So when, probably 15 years ago. Let's call it 15. So, so this woman has not been on a plane in 15 years. And she needed to go down to, to her home, which is in southern Indiana, for a very specific reason not that long ago. Um, she had to do it on short notice. And so she had very few alternatives. And we quickly, you know, I, I just I took control of the project. Basically, you know, told her she had to fly, identified the flights for, she, cho she chose a flight, you know, got the flight. I took her to the airport. I took her to the airport approximately, I'm going to say 100 minutes early. I'm a stickler. Yeah. <laughs> I'm a stickler for being on time. And if, yep. you're, if you're riding with me, you're going to be on time whether you want to or not. And that, that was what it was like. I had to drag her out the door, get her in the car. But, Mom, we're not going to miss this, you know, blah, blah. I get her to the airport. I drop her off. I leave. I drive home. And uh, I live real close to the airport in Detroit. It's only about 18 minutes from here. So I get home, and I'm just going about my business. And I'll say about uh, 100 minutes later, or let's call it 90 minutes later, my phone rings. It's her, my mom calling. And I'm thinking, okay, now that's weird because she should be on the plane right now, and she's not the kind of person that would make a phone call from the plane. Yep. I'm not even sure you can do that. I don't, I don't think you can. I don't think you can anymore. But anyway, so uh, I answer the phone, and my mom, who is just very emotional, is just screaming and crying. And and I, it took me seriously like 15, 20 seconds to figure out that what she was saying was that she didn't get on the flight. And the reason she did not get on the flight was because she could not find the gate. Now, you have to understand, if you've ever been to Metro Detroit's new airport, it's one of the nicest airports in America. It's it's really nice. It's extremely well organized. Talking you about could, McNamara, the terminal? Yes. Yeah. 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 So you, good. You could it's honestly one of the best. It really, it's gorgeous. And it's having flown all over the U.S. and Europe. It's one of the it's one of the easiest airports to understand. It's and, Yeah, it's basically just a giant hallway that has gate numbers that are the size of, you know, I don't know what, uh, picture windows. I mean, they're enormous signs. And so my mom, there's a bottom line, my mom could not decode that system. And when I said, why didn't you ask for help? She said she asked three different people 
and apparently none of them could articulate to her, hey, lady, you see that big number on that sign right there? You see how they go? the numbers go down if you walk that way and they go up if you walk that way? Well, you want to walk that way. And then you look for that number. See this number on your ticket right here? It says gate 45. You look for the number 45. She could not figure it out, and she missed the flight. Oh, my God. And this poor kid, this relative of mine who shall remain nameless because I don't want to embarrass him, but he had been he, he had drawn the short straw and had to drive from French Lick, Indiana, to Louisville, or as they call it in southern Indiana, Louisville, Louisville, Kentucky, which is where the airport was that she was flying into. This poor kid, I think he waited seven hours. Oh, my gosh. Because she had to get on a different flight. It didn't leave for several hours. And and the kid couldn't drive home. It's just far enough that you wouldn't drive. Like, you know, an hour of drive. You don't drive home for that. This poor kid. This poor kid. And all my day mom, waiting. Yeah, all day. And the worst part of it is, is that to this moment, my mom does not blame herself for that. She blames the airport, the people who tried to help her. She, blame, she blames me for that. In fact, it's funny because every time that story comes up, she starts... Her first comment is, you dropped me off at the wrong gate, you wrong doors. You dropped me off at the wrong doors. And you're like, I can't take you to the gate. <laughs> right. But no, her point is, you know, if you can picture McNamara, there are a number of, of entrances. Yeah, but, they, yeah, but they, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Because you have matter. to go through the same security check, then they all drop you into the same. Okay, exactly. so for the listener, exactly. geometry of this situation is important. Because what you need to understand is that every security check at McNamara drops you into the same location when you get into the airport. Exactly. So what it, it would be, it's completely irrelevant where, where I dropped her off. And when I tried to explain that to her, she literally couldn't understand it. Like, I, it was like I was talking to a monkey. Oh my gosh. Yeah. But anyway, th those are my stories. Let's get back to, so you were talking about what it was like when you, when you went to, to Paris, that cultural transition. So I've said this before, and, and you know, it, it's still every time I think about this, I just I laugh inside if I don't laugh outside. Which is the audacity that you had in uh, aspiring to work at the U.S. Embassy in Paris and not speaking French. Uh, yeah, well, and you did I, that. I, you I did, did speak, that. I did speak a little bit, but oh, did I did you? not speak. I didn't speak. I had two years of French in high school. <laughs> oh, I didn't know that. I thought you were going in one hundred percent cold. I mean, look. <laughs> I know it's not the same thing. I know that doesn't mean. I was going to say it. what? Let's let's ask ourselves the question: How effective do we think the U.S. school system is at teaching foreign languages? Let's let's ask that question. Yeah, probably first. not very good. Yeah. So i i could I could ask questions like, "Where? Uh, hello, my name is Brendan. Where's the bathroom? Uh, I would like to order a beer. Like things things like that. You know, where's the post office? Right. <laughs> Like these, these well, guys actually, think. I think that I think that probably makes you overqualified for government work. <laughs> oh, man, it it was. um Yeah. But it, I mean, it was like the just to g give you an example of how abysmally bad I oh, in over my head. I was I wouldn't say I was bad. I rose to the occasion. But just so the listener understands the job that I had, because it's relevant to the story, the job that I had was working on the restoration of a very old building that the U.S. owns in Place de la Concorde in downtown Paris. So there's an old embassy consulate section that is, it's a very historic place. 
um, for a number of reasons that are completely relevant to the United States, but most notably that the Marshall Plan was launched from that building after the Second World War. Oh, wow. That's cool. So it is cool. And the the building was being restored. They moved the consulate section out of the building after September 11th and moved it to a more secure location on the other side of Place de la Concorde that the U.S. could kind of just exercise more sort of control and defense over. And consequently, the U.S. owned this building, but like didn't really know what to do with it. And so they were kind of restoring it into being like a museum, but it would also function as a uh, kind of a legal office and for a number of different things that were just not as sort of politically and nationally sensitive for a number of reasons. So that's relevant to the story because I was basically this intern liaison with one of the guys who is the chief art historian who is trying to restore the building to its original look from when it had been built during the reign of Louis the 15th, which was basically the, you know, early 1700s, basically. Oh, wow. Wow. Yeah. That's history. Yeah. Sort of early to mid 1700s. And it was, uh, a really complicated job, which I didn't know when I got it. And I was kind of amazed they chose me because like day one, my boss and this woman is, I mean, this, this, this girl, I should say this old girl, this young woman, your boss was basically my boss. My boss was very similar to, I don't want to be mean to my boss. She was a very nice, nice, nice lady, but it was, she was just like a, she was as if that Lori Laughlin's daughter had just been transported to like head up this like division at the U S embassy that was in charge of this restoration. She was just very like, oh my God, I forgot all of my documents to this meeting. Like it just, (laughs) that's the kind of thing that she would do. And so day one, she was just like, I what? Hey Brendan, um, why don't you go get lunch with Fabrice Uziel, who's this famous Parisian art historian in the world of Paris art history. Um, why don't you go meet with Fabrice Uziel? He'll tell you what, what all the ateliers need to have done by the end of the week on this building. I was like, okay. So we go sit down at lunch. I learn immediately that Fabrice Uziel speaks no English. Oh, God. <laughs> he speaks only French. I speak barely French. I barely speak French. And he just it just starts unloading all of these things on me in French, just like, oh my God. Um, you know, what, what we need to have done by the end of the week, like what things need to get changed. And I'm like furiously writing notes down. And in my brain, I'm like, I can't. I can't like tell these people that I don't speak French. Like that's right. why I got this job. Oh my like, they, god! <laughs> like I can't, I can't just be like, uh, désolé, Monsieur Uziel, je ne parle pas le français parce que je suis un liar. Like, <laughs> I just, I can't, I can't do that. So we're sitting there, and I'm furiously taking a ton of notes. And Uncle Mike, I'm so serious. I have no idea how I did in that specific moment. I don't know what my brain did to get those notes correct, but I just I wrote I think I wrote verbatim everything he said. And, you know, we just had this lunch. I didn't get a word in edgewise. Lucky for me, from Mr. Fabrice Uziel, uh, who actually also is a very nice guy, but is just like an art historian person who's very kind of full of himself. He's just like, oh, yeah, I'm just. I know what oh. I'm. I know what I'm talking about. And uh, by the end of the week, we need to have these things done. And I will keep talking, so you know how great I am. <laughs> like that's, 
the kind of dude he was. So he didn't he didn't like ask for feedback from me at any period of time. <laughs> he just continued to talk. And a- after about an excruciating like 45 minutes of getting a, qu- a quick lunch with this guy, um, he was like, OK, well, I have to go. And then like left. And he's like, I'll see you tomorrow. And I went back and my boss was gone for the day. This is day one. My boss just like left me alone with this guy. And then she herself left for the rest of the day. Because she forgot I, her documents. Methodically. Yeah. Forgot her shit. I like methodically went back through all of my notes and attempted to translate all of them and then did and left this thing for her on her desk about like everything that Mr. Uziel wanted done by the end of the week. And, um, and I never heard from her. She was just like, Oh yeah, good work. And then moved on to the next thing the next day. But I was like terrified. So I just, it was like a a crazy first day. Oh my God. It was insane. It was like a trial by fire. So what was the rest of the experience like? I mean, how different are the French people from the Americans that you had known to that point? Well, I think relevant to the story about the airport, one of the things that I think is truly different that that is interesting to observe when you're in France is that in America, we think that children are innocent. And in France, they believe that children are ignorant. And that's a really important. That is a massive distinction. It is. Yeah, it really is. So one of the things that people don't have a problem with in France that they do have a problem with in America is educating other people's kids, educating other people's kids. Yeah, is not a problem at all. There, there is no argue. You can go sit in a park and watch children, which I've done. Uh, You can go sit in a park. (laughs) Hey, I didn't know we had that in common, too. (laughs) How do you think I make all my money on the dark web? (laughs) <laughs> so there was a children's park near uh, Parc de Commerce, which is where I lived in 2008. There was a cafe that just sits right on. It's like in the park, basically. And you can just sit and get a cup of coffee, a beer, you know, glass Hammered. of wine, whatever. It's a great place to hang out. And there's a, you know, there's a kid's playground like right there. Because of this difference, Americans' children are innocent. Uh, French children are ignorant. Is that in France, children are educated by everybody so you can see these kids if there's like something going on there's like parents who are not their parent who have no problem being like no 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 you should not yell yep like you do not yell like there are people sitting around here so as a result like you can have a cafe right next to a children's playground and it's really not that big of a deal because kids are pretty quiet i mean it's still the sound of like children playing so i could get an erection but <laughs> Uh, I knew you would appreciate that. Oh, one. Uh, that was just you, 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 you're, you know, it's like it's like we we do have some odd genetic actual connection. <laughs> so and the point that I'm making though uh, is that everybody is, you know, these this the, uh, the kids are like quiet, and you can sit there and you know have a beer or a, or a coffee or something and and read a book or and an eight year old. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Anyway, it's not a big deal because uh, they're they're really well behaved, and and the reason they're well behaved is because they are educated, yeah. rather than just allowed to get away with anything they want. Exactly. Because we think, oh, childhood is this time of because the question is like, okay, well, at what point is a child no longer innocent? Right. It's not like when they're like six months old, obviously. So at some, what is the 
what is the line of demarcation? Yeah, I, I, there, and there's no cultural. I don't think there's any cultural conversation around that. It in just fact, happens. in the United States, what I think is weird is that there's, there, there's almost like an inversion where we think there's almost this perpetual adolescence for some people, and then this impending adulthood for other people. Mm-hmm. And it, it's like a bizarre. It hits all at one time where. If you're 16 years old, like you should have a job and you should be working and also, you know, all of these other things. But if you're 31 and and you don't have a driver's license, like not a big deal if you live in a major city. Like it's kind of, I don't know. Like I, those are two just two arbitrary thoughts. Right, but, right. Yeah, I get it. I, I think I understand what you're saying. But that, that had to like be just a fa- that, that, that had to be fascinating to see just just on that one point about innocence versus ignorance. Like how that manifests, you know, in all the different places that it has to manifest. I mean, well, consequently, to... I mean, just children are really well behaved. Yeah, and I've never, I've just never been around that many well behaved children. That's just awesome. It is. It's a much. It, it's very nice to you know. Well, there's not. This is not, by the way. If if the if the listener is hearing this and going, wait, well, how can that? How can that be? What is that like? It, this has not escaped the awareness of many American writers who have moved to Paris for different reasons. You can just look this up online. There's a number of articles that have been written about it because Americans, the culture is just so starkly different in this specific regard that people are surprised when they see this. The children walk around, around Paris together in a group. And what they do is they have like, and this is something in cities that, and in Paris, it's very true is that a whole school class of children will all walk around with their teacher it'll just be their one teacher and then you know 20 25 30 kids and there'll be like a long rope and they all hold on to the rope Uh and so it's like this little gaggle of children who are you know wandering around well in paris it's not unusual to see that during the school day because they leave the classroom to go on field trips from you know pretty Uh often and they're all quiet like they're wow. all pretty well behaved and they I mean it's still children so they're you know they're right. talking to each other and things like this but just nobody's like screaming they don't have to have additional people to try to like herd these children from place to place and I think it's because they just get the sense pretty early that it's like look if I this is how I'm supposed to be and that's the way people are I think that part of this is that in America, there's this sense that like it's wrong for some reason to, to discipline children. But the second thing is that when that discipline happens in the United States, there, it's so it's almost like some like the, the, the barrier it has to be so high that it requires so much like energy from the child to have done something so wrong that it overcame that barrier. Like the limit condition is so high that by the time it passes it, it's like the retribution is like horrible. Like nobody disciplined this kid until they threw a rock through a, you know, car window in a parking lot. And now the kid is like getting tackled by the security guard. And they're like, wait, I don't understand. Like what happened? It's like the, the, just the, the, the level of like high, like American society is just how so high strung. It feels like yes, the French society is just really just everything is just so chill. So it's like kids are just like if they yell, parents are like, don't do that. You're being too loud. OK, now go back and play. Like, it's not a big deal. Right. It's just don't do that. Right. In, in, Amer- in American culture, those events are uh, exceptional, which is exactly what you were just saying. They are exceptional events. They don't happen often and they they are often, you know, avoided for some reason. And. This this I'm I'm amazed at how fascinated I am with this 
I'm topic. Like I'm literally sitting here listening to you talk and I'm not even fully listening to you. And the reason I'm not is because my mind is exploding with the implications of this in terms yeah. of just how the cultures, again, I, I know I already said this, but this is how profound this is to me, that how that just rolls out and manifests in 10 trillion different little nooks and crannies of a culture where, oh, yeah. where the, kid, very different. The, the kids were raised to learn all the lessons. All the lessons of our culture have been instilled in almost every one of these kids. And the ones who didn't uh, you know, take it in or embrace it or absorb it probably had something wrong with them for real, like a psychological problem or, or a learning disability or something like that. Because if a whole culture, I mean, you know, if it, if it takes a village and the village is actually doing its thing, that there would be an incredible amount of, uh, one, I would say, a, a national pride. Um, se mm. Secondly, mm. Se because, the, because the, these things have to be discussed all the time with all the kids. I mean, not yeah. because you're trying to, just because it just happens. It's a conversation. Yeah. I think everything just comes up at some point if, the, if there's enough communication happening between adults and kids, which, I mean, there's got to be just an infinitely greater amount of interaction between adults and kids in, in France than in America, obviously, especially with, uh, you know, with foreign, uh, foreign to the child adults. Yeah. And so, um, and, and I'm, I'm just thinking like, so like everybody, you, you could assume as a member of that culture that like all of you, other people know all the same stuff I do. We have all this stuff that it's a shared body of knowledge that in America, I think if you were to just to measure just that one point, you know, like the shared body of knowledge, I bet you in America, it's 10 or 20% as high or as much as it is in France. Mm. Mm. And that and that right there is a major thing. It's like there's just like, you know, I don't want to take this in a political direction, but it's it's really relevant to the point I'm trying to make, which is in this blog post that I referenced earlier that I'm going to publish tomorrow or the next day. Um, I talk about um, the social justice warriors and social justice mob and how um, uh, the irony of these these young people who are protesting, tearing down in the name of fighting racism, they tear down a statue of a famous abolitionist. Yeah. So I'm guessing that wouldn't happen in France. <laughs> um, I mean, it, well, that specific thing would not happen well, in you know, France. Well, the, the nuance, you understand the nuance, is like they wouldn't tear down, even if they wanted to tear down statues, they'd have enough knowledge to know that, hey, that's an abolitionist, and we're fighting racism so why would we mess that up i just think there's so much ignorance yeah i mean there like, is so I think much so ignorance in america yeah i th well i think that that's true because i think that that i mean just on that specific point which is that we don't do a very good job educating period. ourselves yeah period. period i think that that's true i think that i would say though that it's just not look like at France. us yeah i mean like it's not like with yeah just look at us it's not like with that France is like a uh, not without its problems. I mean, they have a whole bunch of their own issues that, but they're culturally different issues. I mean, like they're like one of the things that the United States is very good at is that you. What I actually wrote an essay about this years ago because I found it so fascinating while I was living there. I didn't write it like for anything. I just wrote it as a, you know, as a man of letters. Right. Writes an essay. Um. <laughs> 
And you're nothing if not a man of letters. I'm nothing if not a man of well, letters. Well, wait, I'm sorry. Let me study it over. You're nothing if not a pedophile and a man of letters. <laughs> oh, boy. All right. Uh, so I wrote this essay, though, and the, the point of it was that, for, like, the country of France really believes it has the world's best culture. And and you know what? It I, might. They, 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 get, they have a pretty good argument. Like, it's... They do. It's fucking awesome. It's great to hang out. Like, they... You know, like in the United States, we subsidize corn. In France, they subsidize wine. So we subsidize corn and dairy in the United States. Dairy farmers get part of your tax dollars to continue to make dairy, which makes no fucking sense. But now that's just the way that it is, and it's just going to continue that way. And and in France, that wine producers do that. And part of the reason they do that is because not all you it takes a very long time for you to to actually manufacture wine and you have no idea if your product is going to be good or not yep. when you start making it. Yep. So part of the part of the problem that they were trying to solve for is that you can make wine in the country of France because it's so culturally relevant to who we are. We love it, we love drinking it, we love having it. We love it for all of our people around here. It's what we identify as that you can make wine as a farmer and not worry that you're going to fuck up your entire family's finances because you had a bad harvest one year or things went wrong. I think that makes perfect sense. Yeah, so I think it does. I think they've culturally all decided that's what they like and that's who they are. And consequently, as a result now, you can go get subsidized wine. And it's great because for like five euro, you can buy a giant bottle of wine that is better than anything you're going to find in the United States. I don't want to say anything, but – Almost anything in the United States you're going to find that's going to be like 20, 30 bucks at a store, you can buy for like five euro, six euro at a market in France, and it's great. And because this culture has caused all these people to just experiment a lot, there's going to be somebody who freaks out about that going like, there's a tradition wine thing in France and you can't experiment. Yes, that's true. The point I'm making is that it's subsidized, so it's really cheap. Anyway, they drink outside. They have no problems with that. Like one of the other cultural differences that I, I wanted to relate to here because you were saying there's this cascade effect of a lot of yes, this. Yes, yes. There's a really good one, which is I was I was, um, I was was walking around one night, had a bunch to drink in one of my favorite areas of the city and was pretty, pretty blasted and ended up walking across a famous bridge in Paris called the Pont des Beaux-Arts. And the Pont des Beaux-Arts is uh, right by the uh, uh, art school in Paris, hence the name Beaux-Arts, which is beautiful arts. And uh, it's a pedestrian bridge and it's a sort of a location because of its proximity to that school, that art school and its location on the river Seine right by Notre Dame. It's just got a beautiful view of the city and it's populated with all kinds of interesting, creative people who, when they get out of class, hang out on the bridge and drink until the wee hours of the morning, many nights, depending on the day of the week. And everybody there is just playing music. and Sounds um, like you know, bohemia. Yeah, it really is in many ways. It's very bohemian. And people are, you know, there's young people, but there's not just young people. There's also, you know, older people and there's people who are walking along the river who got went to dinner and came out. It's a rather large pedestrian bridge so it can – it can, you know, carry a lot of different people wandering across it in different ways. But it's a very beautiful scene. And one of the things that I noticed when I was walking up and down it, though, was that people were drinking. They were drinking in public. They were having a good time. Nobody was going nuts. And part of the reason they weren't going nuts was because there were police officers walking up and down the bridge. And I remember thinking, this is so fucking intelligent of this 
community that these people have realized, hey, we don't really give a shit what age you are if you're drinking. Just don't cause a scene and you won't have a problem with us. We won't arrest you. We're not going to ask we're not going to ask for your id yeah that's very we're not going to give you a hard time and as a result nobody on that bridge was getting assaulted nobody was getting date raped on that bridge nobody was i mean think of all the problems that the binge drinking house party culture has created in the united states because the drinking age is 21 and it is strictly enforced in france if you're if you look like you could be over the age of 16 nobody I, i didn't get id'd once Really? Like the whole time I was there. Nobody asked for my ID. Nobody gives a shit. If you look like you're old enough to, you know, be a, an adult, like just you just look old enough, you're over the age of 15 or 16, nobody cares. We'll, we'll serve you. Doesn't oh, you matter. would have been Not carded here. That I'm sure of. Oh, I've gotten I've gotten carded here. Yeah, I, I mean, back then, all the for time. sure. Oh, yeah, I would have. I, I, yeah, yeah, I would have definitely gotten carded here. Even now I get carded and I'm like, dude, look at me. Do you think I'm under 21? Does it look like my favorite <laughs> musical artist is Billie Eilish? Like, does it look do, does it look like my favorite musical artist is Billie Eilish? Or is it maybe like somebody with ice in their rapper name? Like what? <laughs> how fucking old? Speaking like, how of- young do you think I am? Does it look like I started driving 48 months ago? Like. <laughs> Just look at look at my face, like. Oh yeah, man, oh, that's, that's just my Billie job. Billie Eilish. No, it isn't. It is not your job. It is not your job to be the Gestapo of checking IDs at this bar. That's like, true. It isn't. That's true. It isn't. It's so. It drives me nuts so much. And and part of the reason it drives me nuts is because I've seen how it could be, and it could be so much better. Like yeah, I literally. Oh my gosh. Like I wrote oh down my today, gosh. I yes. wrote down today in a notebook. So the so in one of the positives that has happened since coronavirus hit the United States is uh, a lot of cities have embraced this idea that they're like, okay, well, let's close down roads mm-hmm. yes. uh, in order to give more space, and then we'll allow restaurants that cannot have people inside yep. to sit outside at tables. Um, wonderful idea. I I can't even begin to tell you. I I just it's the best idea. That's how most of the rest of the world functions. Um, We are so married to the concept of having petroleum vehicles driving up and down roads that should otherwise be occupied by people just walking around like it, it, it makes for a much better place. So I just came from. Much earlier today, a, a restaurant here in Chicago on Lincoln uh, on Lincoln and Sheffield called Prost. It's a German uh, beer house, and the whole street, Lincoln Street, is just shut down right near the um, the L station south of um, Diversity. Just so people listening, if they're familiar with the geography, and you can sit outside on the street. It's wonderful. It's just, it's 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 such a good thing to do, and I feel like that's a cultural element that we lack. Like, yeah, and th- as a result, the city of Chicago has had to kind of like change temporarily its liquor laws so that you yep. can drink outside and not within like this very prescribed area. There's no fucking reason that there needs to that, that the United States needs to be so um, draconian about its liquor laws in terms of like, uh, did you like I've been in situations. I'm, let's just let me stand on my soapbox and rant about this for a second, because I've been in situations where. I've walked from the inside of a restaurant to the outdoor seat of a restaurant, but 
in order to traverse that distance, I have to walk across public sidewalk. And they won't let you? And they won't let me with a drink. They're, oh my they're like, God. you're going to have to put your drink down here on this table. Then you can go sit down. Then I, the waitress, will pick your drink up and bring it to you because if you carry it across the public sidewalk, that's actually illegal for you. You can get a, you can get a ticket and we can get fined. Yep. That's so stupid. Like, it's so fucking stupid. That is exactly – if you told that to the founding fathers, they would be like, why the fuck would – why? Like, what? that's exactly what we rebelled against England for is the government reaching into your life like that. And I, I – it makes me – it's relevant to this point because I literally earlier just wrote down there should be a group like the committee or the organization for sensible liquor laws. Like, it just – there's been this like weird tough on crime, tough on drugs, tough on whatever period of American political history that came through like the 80s and into the 90s. Yep. And it's like left us with all of these laws that kind of like don't really make any sense. Like does the drinking age make sense at 21? I maybe I don't I mean like we can we drive everywhere so I guess it kind of makes sense, but like also, why wouldn't it make sense for you to have a drink when you're with your parents and they right. buy you a drink and you're sitting? And that's how that's a great way to learn to be responsible. Yeah, yeah, that's exact. Okay, so that's the point that you captured it completely. When you're sitting on the Pont de Beaux Arts and you're 17 years old and you are hanging out with your 20 uh, year old friends who all go to the 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 Ecole de Beaux Arts and you're drinking on the bridge, you're learning to drink responsibly because you can't drink irresponsibly because there are cops around yep. and your friends and other and adults and adults who are going to tell you who are not who are coming from a culture that are not afraid to tell you, hey, you're fucking up. You're drinking too much. Don't be like that. We're going to get you a cab like we're going to take you home. Your parents are going to get mad at you when I brought, drop you off like that's not something that happens here because nope. everything is forced into. It reminds me, actually. You know, when liquor was illegal, period, during Prohibition, it the culture that surrounded drinking became worse because people had to go drink in locations where there was no legal enforcement of anything. Right. So, like, you go to a speakeasy, end up getting in a fight and getting stabbed because there's a bunch of ne'er-do-wells there who are also gambling and you interrupted their game. Like, that kind of shit yep. doesn't happen in bars today because gambling is illegal, but drinking is legal. You know what I mean? Yeah. Or gambling is legal also, in which case you're, you know, in a casino or something. So it, it, that's the difference between cr something being criminalized and something being legalized and then legally and responsibly enforced. Yeah, good points all. And it's interesting because uh, in, for the exact same reasons that you cited, in downtown Northville, you know, and downtown Plymouth, the two communities, you know, one I live in and one I used to live in. Uh, they've done the same thing, and it is completely – well, in the case of Northville, they actually closed off an entire street. I'm sure you can – you know which part of the town that would be. You yeah, it's know probably Center center Street or Main, Main Street. Main and Center, correct. Yeah. Uh, anyway, they, they blocked off the most heavily trafficked block of this little town, and it has completely changed the character of the little town. I mean it's like it's – you don't even recognize it uh, in a positive way, in a, in a wildly positive way. And what you see is – this like the fact that I that I didn't see that potential before it actually happened. You know, I never thought to myself, "Oh, they should block that street off. That'd be awesome." I never once thought that, and the first time I saw it, it was you know, it was up. It was done. It was in existence, and there were tables everywhere because there's a number of restaurants on this block. So you know, there were tables out in the street exactly as you know you described, and uh, 
it was just and, cool. It's honestly, just cool. That's how that's how Paris is. That's how Nantes is. That's how I mean you can name a number of of European towns where that's just how it is in the in the town center. And it 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 feels so much more natural, I think, for it to be that way than oh, yeah. the other way, which is let's give precedent to cars that are driving around. And like that space previously was not valuable to any of the people who were operating businesses or living down there. But now it's become valuable space. Like nobody, nobody, there is no, like, I don't know what the market value on allowing cars to pass through those streets are, but it's got to be lower than allowing people to walk around on them. Uh, and yes and no. I mean, I certainly get your your logic and makes sense, but there's another factor there, which is the, the negative on that, which is that you you're decreasing the flow of traffic and activity that can get to and from those locations potentially. Now, granted, depends upon the place. You could have adequate parking, and it wouldn't matter. Yeah, but you get the point I'm making. I mean, there is. Yeah, some I, I mean, look, the, the middle ground here is that there is a way to operate that space yeah, such that people can have both. Yes, I agree. And it's and, and I and, and so, at what point did you become used to? Uh, you know that 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 specific cultural difference of, I mean, maybe you probably got used to it very quickly. The all the kids are educated early, etc. Because you're probably dealing with just a whole bunch of really reasonable, reasonably educated people. Yeah, I mean, I think that it there are different. I mean, some of the things. So, like the there are two answers to this question because the some of the things that are more that make more sense and are more natural, you just become acquainted with immediately. Exactly. Like the idea that I don't have to show my ID and prove that I'm who I say I am or whatever is natural. So it just makes sense that that wouldn't be an issue or, right. you know, dealing with like children where if a kid does something, I can say, you know, please get out of my way. Like if I'm riding a bike, some kid just did this the other day here in Chicago, I was riding a bike and this kid just stopped in the middle of the sidewalk as I'm riding. And I just stopped my bike and stared at this kid. And his mom went, sorry. And I was just like, what? Like, if I had said, please get out of my way to that child, the mom would have been like, wait, what? You could don't talk to my child that way or yep. something like the fact that yep. you can say these things politely to a kid. I mean, that's the problem in the States is that there's just no polite way to do this. There's no socially acceptable. No, way. there isn't. You, to you, do can't, this. you cannot talk to my fucking kid no matter what tone of voice you use. Back the fuck up. Yes. That right there, I think, was a perfect characterization of how Americans view their kids. Yeah, it's just so high strung. You know, it's just, oh, yeah. it's just, it's just really high strung. And, and so you get used to that like right away where you're not and I'm not like walking around fucking hitting kids left and right. Right. <laughs> though, <laughs> though, that is a great way to spend an afternoon. Um, <laughs> Excellent I'm, point, my friend. <laughs> I'm, I'm just saying that, I, you know, I'm just, you know, you just you're used to it. But the the more difficult things that are to get used to are things that are culturally contrasting in the United States in a way that doesn't feel natural for us. Like the cost so, of prostitution's higher there. Uh, way cheaper because it's way more acceptable. Um, the the difficulty. I mean, people don't give a shit. I mean, I never got a prostitute while I was there, but I know that people I, I, I just, just don't fucking funny. care. Just it's just funny. a part of their culture. I know. I know that. Sorry, um, sorry to interrupt. Go ahead. So, but but the things that are that are odd, like um, you. you know, two examples here are that the the French are very quiet, 
and they speak very quietly to one another. Oh, wow. And so I got, um, because the French believe that you're ignorant, not innocent, they don't mind telling you if you're speaking too loud. And they don't mind telling you directly that you're like, oh, pardon me, sir, this is a quiet area and you're being very loud. And I felt terrible a lot for the first, I'm a very loud person, and I felt terrible <laughs> a lot when I was first there. For, oh, that had to be awful. Yeah, it was really bad uh, for weeks because I would just start speaking and I would just start talking louder and then people would come over. I mean, pe- pe- people from across the room would walk over and they would be like, a small, being... a small line would form yeah. most nights. Yeah. Pardon me, monsieur. You're being very quite loud. This is a very quiet place. We are trying to have a drink here. I'm with my friend. All we can hear is you talking. And I would feel really terrible and apologize profusely. Actually, strangely, one of the things that the French are um, – and this is why, by the way, they get the reputation for being rude to Americans. Yeah, is that would they, seem rude to us. Yeah, because they don't mind telling you that you're not behaving properly. But we're not one of the used things to I honesty. Heard, well, something you told me years ago is that you were like, you can turn a, po- a, a negative situation into a positive one just by by apologizing honestly and and, and admitting yep. like what you did oh, and yeah, seeing if sure. you can, you know, you can find recompense to the people who you've maybe wronged or whatever. So. I actually made friends with groups of people because I would buy them a round of drinks in apology and they would be so, but uncle Mike, I'm telling you, they would be so like, they would come over to me afterwards and they would be like, you didn't have to do that. And that's very nice of you. And could um, you please keep it down again? Yeah. Jesus. Could you please also be quiet. But I'm telling you, like they would want to, they would be like, Oh, you're look, we knew you were American. We, 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 we know that you guys don't know this, but you know, that's why we had to tell you. And then I would just I would make friends with them. And some of these people I'm still friends with to this day because, you know, we we bonded over that and and they were very quick to forgive when you do that kind of stuff. But a, a second one is that, I mean, just and this is the one that is like the most common that people say, but dining culture is just very different in someone's business in France. You are a guest, but it is their business. And in America, the customer is always right, and yep. you're the, you're in command. And yes. what do you want? We would love to help you. And in France, it's more like, thank you for coming into my restaurant. I've prepared a menu for you. Here it is. Here are your selections. So like, it's not unusual for you to go to a restaurant and go like, yeah, I'd like to order this, but can I please not have this on it and instead have this? And they'll be like, nope. <laughs> <laughs> You're going to get it the way that we made it for you because the chef knows more about food than you do. And I don't mind telling you that that's the only way we're going to do it for you. And if you don't want to eat here, I'm you're welcome to leave. <laughs> like it, that particular situation is not odd at all. And like the, the, the chef knows more about food than the waiter and the waiter knows more about the menu food than you do. I love that. And I'm being yeah. serious. I really do. I mean, I'm ex- I know you and I had this whole conversation once because I changed an item on a menu that we went out to eat dinner at once. And uh-huh. you were like, what the fuck, dude, to me? I did? Really? <laughs> yeah. I think we were at like the post or something. And I was like, yeah, could I have this burger? But I actually want this different cheese on it. And you were like, come yeah, on, that, dude. No, like, come on. I, that, hey, I admit when I do dumb shit. I, I, I it wasn't that small. Whatever it was, I tried to change like three things on the order. And you were like. They they don't mind telling right, you right, right, that, right. that like they, I love it. 
you don't know anything about what you're talking about. I you know? love that. I, lo- I mean, and it's just true. It's just it makes perfect sense. It makes perfect sense. And all this time, I've had I've harbored this completely unreasonable. I don't know where it came from. It's just you know the the stereotypes that we have in our culture about that culture, which we absolutely do have. Oh yeah. You know what I mean? And like the first thing you already said it is that uh, the French are rude, mm. uh, which they also say about New Yorkers. And yeah. I absolutely have not found that to be true about New Yorkers, really. I found them to be incredibly outgoing and social. And, you know, just uh, anybody will say something to anybody else at any time in New York. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. That doesn't make them rude. That just makes them, you know, whatever. I, the point is I don't, I don't think probably any of these things that, that we thought were accurate. Um, mm. And then the other thing is maybe lazy. Are French people lazy? Oh, I mean, that's a true stereotype. <laughs> oh, okay. All right. They just, I wouldn't say that they're lazy. I mean, by American standards. Well, lazy. everybody probably looks lazy compared to American standards. Yeah, I mean, that's the truth. So I shouldn't say that they're lazy. They they work they work very hard. But, I mean, they're like, the difference is that in America we work, we, we live to work. And in France yes. they work to live. And they, they really don't mind making that distinction where, like, you know, and it, it, it and it takes on I mean, in America, it takes on the bizarre proportions because it's like you would work. You know, I know people in the world of startups who are like, I work, you know, 54 hours, hours a week, hours. Oh, 60 God, hours way a more week. than that. Way yeah. More or yeah. That. 100 hours a week or whatever. And I mean, like there are definitely French professionals who work 100 hours a week who are working but on that's startups. That's not the like culture. That. Yeah. But I mean, like the your average worker in the United States at, you know, let's say, 4 p.m. on a Friday is probably not producing anything valuable for the company. I agree. And in France, they would just go, just leave. Like, why are you still here? Like, You're doing nothing productive. Yeah, you're doing nothing good. Like, why would you, this moment, you're robbing this moment of, you know, what it could, like, be because you're, <laughs> you, you, you could just be relaxing and... Instead, you're insisting on pretending like you're working and you're not really working. Right, right. And that was it was very interesting to work at the embassy because there was two different sort of rules that applied to people because the embassy had a lot of French nationals who worked there. Um, and then there was obviously lots of Americans and all of the French nationals followed basically the 35 hour a week French schedule, which is you work for seven hours a day. You have an hour for lunch, maybe 90 minutes for lunch in the middle of the day. Lunch is the bigger meal in France than dinner. And, and then like sometimes you would just, maybe you would, as soon as you get to 35 hours, so maybe you worked late on Tuesday and Wednesday by a couple hours. So at, you know, 3 PM on Friday, 2 PM on Friday, you just get up and leave like not a big deal. But then the, there was this American working culture of people who were just working their asses off all the time. So it was weird to have the two next to each other. Oh yeah, uh, and yeah. kind of in, in and to see that sort of so just place so kind of in stark relief by one another because that was the way that it was in the the government facilities where you worked the American yeah, yep. the American work culture carried over there. Oh yeah, for sure. Oh wow, that's interesting. I would have thought that it would have been influenced by the culture, and they would have maybe knocked it down a notch. Well, there the so it's weird because government work in and I and I think it makes sense in a lot of ways has a really bad reputation yeah much of it earned in my opinion 
Well, yeah, because I think that most of the offices that normal people deal with in government work are honestly just probably stocked by it's like it's almost like a public service for people who can't get normal jobs. Um, right. As shitty as that sounds, but it's kind of true. Yeah. And I think that, however, in, in the State Department, I mean, these are like really important jobs that are extreme. I mean, that was the year oh, yeah. that George Bush visited France. No, I, I totally get the distinction you're making. In, in that context of the work that was being done in the places where you were, that was real work. Oh, yeah. As opposed to this, the typical stamping papers and filing shit that, you know, comprises 80% of the government jobs in America, probably. Yeah, like there were just real – I mean it's not to say that that normal government jobs in America don't have consequences to the people who deal with them. I think part of the reason they have such a bad reputation is that there are consequences and people do stupid, bad work that then affects people's lives. But I'm sure. talking about like – you know, I was involved with groups that were doing things within the embassy that if this job didn't get done by today, like real ass political shit was going to be affected and – if and that, and that just would have to happen because like it just has to right. it just has to yep. like so i mean like those so so working you know 40 whatever hours plus in order to get that stuff done was was not odd because that was just the the necessary i mean especially when the president visited it was just i, I was probably working you know 12 to 14 hour days a lot of wow. that time um just due to that was uh, that was w that was Dubs. So you met him, right? I met him, yeah. Shook his hand? Ca- shook his hand, carried his luggage. Did you really? Yeah, I really actually carried his luggage. I carried his, his luggage. I carried his bike, Bike Force One. He had a uh, – he. you carried his bicycle? Yeah, yeah. He brought his – he was famous for this um, within the diplomatic community. He brought a mountain bike that was gi- a gift to him from the Saudis – it was technically not George W. Bush's bike because any gift that's given to a president is technically property of the United States of America and not the oh, wow. personage of the office holder. Interesting. So George W. Bush was gifted a bike by the Saudis and he took that mountain bike everywhere he went and really enjoyed uh, riding it around. And kind everywhere of that he... W. went, that bike was sure to go. <laughs> And and say he was he was into mountain biking, he was really into mountain biking. Yeah, what? He, you look it up online. Look up images of him. He'll help you'll see images of him mountain biking. Wow, that's cra- I had no idea. It, it, was he phys- was he physically fit? Yeah, he's a pretty fit dude actually. Wow, and he's so- short though. He's also a short guy. Really? So uh, what what was your honest impression of him? Uh, he just immediately was the nicest guy. Really. Yeah, he. I immediately liked him. Immediately, that is awesome. and it was funny because I went through my whole, you know, political hating him. Yeah, just never liked him at all. And then I met him in person and was immediately like, "I really like you, dude." Like, I get why people voted for you. I get why people like you. I I totally get it. That is that is really cool, dude. That's really cool. That's really cool for you to have to have met him. Period. To have the added benefit of just the life lesson that you learned right there, yeah, like that's a cool life lesson. That yeah, I, mean, I think that's probably why you know, I mean, you and I got to be better friends after a lot of that me going to France and all that stuff. I think, I mean, we were we were friends through comedy, but I think that politically, I just it, it something affected me about that where I thought 
you know, I just have this guy wrong. I mean, I don't think he's like the best dude ever. And uh, obviously, and I think that a lot of the shit that he wasn't his administration did, you know, so even at some points, it's like maybe borderline whether or not it was illegal. It was it was unethical. But like I, I, something hit me about that where I was like, he does. He's not a bad guy. Like he I think he probably did exactly. He had good faith in the office and worked yep. every day to try to do the best things he could do in the way that he saw things needed to be done during a rather difficult time in American history. Absolutely. And, you know, I can't hate him for the things he didn't do. You should appreciate people for the things they did do. Yeah, um, and, and also I think something that you can ne- you can never really know until you do it, which certainly I haven't done it. I'm not suggesting that I have, obviously, but I'm saying I just have a feeling this is a really accurate statement that mm. until you're in a position like the president of the United States, you have no fucking idea what the real world is all about. And I'm guessing you learn so much shit just because you happen to land in that job, the stuff that nobody told you about because they can't, they couldn't tell you about it until you were the one who actually got the job and entered the office. And suddenly you're presented with all this information that uh, probably just melts your brain. Well, let me just the evidence for that. The fact that during the Second World War, the Manhattan Project was being developed in total secrecy. What? And- Harry S. Truman learned about the existence of the atomic bomb the day he assumed office of president after Franklin Delano Roosevelt passed away. And he did not know until the day that it existed. And by that point, they were already in a critical phase of the war. And that's part of the reason why he decided to use the bomb is he was like, if this if the if word gets out. That I knew I that I learned about the existence of this and didn't use it and didn't use it like I will I will go down forever in American history by uh, by as the president who made the decision that potentially tens, if not 100,000 American Marines needed to die to stop the war in the Pacific rather than using the super weapon that my scientists have developed. Yep. Exactly. And, and people think if Delano Roosevelt had not died, he, he might not have used that mm. weapon. And actually things pro- – I mean we would have still won in the Pacific by that point, but things might have been different. I mean who knows? Yeah. People talk about – I mean who knows what history would have looked like. But I, I just – evidence for that. that. I mean the fact that that's – he was the vice president and he didn't know. That is crazy. And so yeah, I didn't know that story. That's a great story. And you thank you for proving my point. Now multiply that times whatever, be, you know, comparing the, that time, what life, the world was like then versus yeah. what it's like now in terms of complexity and issues. And, and then, and then, so there's the ignorance factor of, I didn't know this shit until I got here and now what do I do? And then I don't care how bright you are. I don't care how driven you are. I don't care how, just whatever you are, no one person can handle that job on their own. So therefore, by, def, by definition, they have to rely on lots of other people. And mm-hmm. I think, you know, um, just picture that. Picture you—you you are the president of the United States. You, Brendan Michael Lemon, is the president of the United States. You got to go out and complete an administration. You got to hire people, and you got to give them responsibilities and jobs, and 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 you got to integrate with all these other people that are sort of on the periphery infrastructure around that. And who mm-hmm. knows? Who knows what those people are like and what their political agendas are and what they're telling you and not. I mean, that job is so complicated that 
ultimately what I was getting to in saying all that was that you said Bush did some things that were unethical or whatever. I'm not disagreeing. What I'm saying is that I think every president by definition does. And it's simply because they're president. And there are so many moving parts and so many different scenarios and so many different decisions that are being made that are beyond your awareness. You're not even aware that that's happening. And you got one bad apple in that mix, not even bad apple, but just maybe something went sideways. Something just didn't go as planned. Some, oh, yeah. Something just didn't, you know, that you, you thought you had like a an informant in some situation who actually turned out to be giving you bad information on purpose. And you make some key national security decision on the basis of bad information. And it looks completely different than it should have because because you got fucked by somebody. That kind of thing. You know, I, I think the average person just can't even comprehend it. So when you see, you know, you see people sitting back and uh, I'm not, this has nothing to do with what you said. I'm just speaking generically, um, you know, about the complexity of holding that office. I can't even, I can't even imagine how the hell would you sleep at night? Oh yeah, dude. I mean, it's I, at all. Yeah. Right. Well, I mean the the office just ages people like you can see, Oh yeah. You know, you can see, uh, I mean, images Everyone. from when the president takes office to when they leave, and it's yep. just, you can just see that it's so much stress. Oh my god! That these I guys can't... have to make these decisions and stuff. Oh my god! Yeah, I can't even. I can't even imagine. Like that's a, that'd be the last job on earth that I would want. I would literally rather dig ditches than do that because that job would just kill me in about two weeks. I worry about uh, false, dude. Mom, far smaller shit than that. Yeah, I know. I mean, this is why this is why we're not voting for Biden. We're voting for his vice president. <laughs> yeah, sadly, you're right. Sadly, you are correct. So, well, this has been uh, this has been a uh, this has been a really uh, fun conversation for me, just personally. It really has. I've just enjoyed. Yeah, it. this is. Uh, I mean, this is great. This is another one of these ones where we fell into something good, especially. I mean, with kids. I'm, I assume we're going to get a lot of hate mail. From people being like, mm. how dare you with the children? <laughs> well, you know, if so, then the then the podcast is doing its job because that's why we <laughs> exist. We're not here to make you feel good about what you're doing. We're here to make you think and laugh and call the police. Um, anyway, so uh, thanks for that great conversation. I enjoyed it. And uh, thanks, everyone, for listening. Until the next time.